Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Chan. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications here at the Medical School. We are joined today by Jeremy Lubin, a physician scientist and professor of molecular medicine here at UMass Chan, who has been immersed for the last three years in everything related to SARS-CoV-2, every variant I think that has existed. You've talked about it, you've studied it. And so we just wanted to check in with you and um, get the very latest on everything. So Dr. Lubin, welcome. Thank you for making time. Thank you, Jennifer. It's, it's so great to, to get to speak with you about this. Yeah, it's, I mean, three years in and it's changing all the time, but as we sit here at the end of January and 2023, what is the landscape? What is the dominant variant that that we're seeing? Well, there's there's quite a menagerie at the moment uh, when you look across the globe. Though there are common features that all these these variants have. Currently in the U.S., the dominant uh, variant, if if you're following closely, has um, has the name XBB.1.5. It's far and away the most dominant version of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's far and away the most uh, common version of the virus in the Northeast of the U.S. And is XBB.1.5 uh, a sub-variant of Omicron? That's that's correct, yes. Um, the There are different ways that people describe the viruses. The easiest is to use this Greek letter designation, but they're not quite equivalent. So Omicron first appeared Thanksgiving-ish a year ago, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's dominated the planet since then. And it's undergone many, many changes, many permutations <laughs> um, since then. In fact, right from the beginning, there were two two different Omicrons that were as different from each other, perhaps actually more different from each other than say alpha and beta were from each other. So the naming is very confusing and um, is, is largely in place. Certainly the Greek letter naming is in place just to make it easier to talk about it, but it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of, of, of how the virus is changing. It is a bit of alphabet soup, right? Alpha, beta, delta, omicron, BF7, XBB. There's so much. Do, do you or does anyone have a, a reasonably firm grip on how many variants there have been? So the answer is yes. I think that question is kind of a, a useful springboard to, to think about more, more broadly about, about what's going on here. So by that, I mean, I think it's it's instructive to go all the way back, say, to 1918 and to think about what happened then and what happened in 2019 in this this current pandemic that we've had. The contrasts are are very informative. So there are certain aspects that are are very similar between the two, but there are certain things that are really amazingly different. And one of them is the technology. So in 1918, 
the planet was devastated. Millions and millions of people died from something. And nobody knew what it was, in fact. And it's really interesting to think about that. The, the concept of a virus was relatively new. The leading idea at the time, and this was certainly in 1918 and up until about the 1930s, the leading idea was that that pandemic was caused by a bacterial infection. The target candidate was uh, a bacterium called Haemophilus influenza, not even a virus. And it wasn't until the 1930s that people realized that there was a, a virus, which we now call influenza, that caused that outbreak. Um, if you, you jump forward um, to the 1980s, and the the AIDS pandemic was was beginning at that time. When it hit, I was a medical student, and I remember how scary it was. We didn't know what it was, what it was caused by. Technology had had come quite a long way since then, and so there were people immediately thinking this this could be a virus, and um, it was a matter of years, but. Um, relatively quickly compared to 1918, certainly, uh, the agent that causes AIDS was discovered. And that's that's the virus HIV-1. So over, over the past 10 years, we've had new technologies um, that are commonly known as deep sequencing or next generation sequencing. And these techniques have really changed our ability to, to monitor the environment and to monitor specifically outbreaks of diseases. Um, so in uh, 2013, when Ebola hit West Africa, there were, again, there were thousands of people died from that outbreak. Um, that was perhaps the first outbreak where we had a handle on what, what the agent was that was causing the disease. And we were able to get information about the virus in near real time. And you may say, why, why do we care about that? Well, it's important to know if the virus is changing because its properties may change and the disease may change. Um, it's also critical to know how the virus is being transmitted. And so if you have real-time sequence about the virus, you can track it and see how it's transmitting from one person to another. And then you can figure out how to prevent it from transmitting. Right. So in that history, you just, um, without probably intending to, sort of traced the arc of your career, right? So you spent much much of the first, I mean, you weren't uh, doing research in 1918, as far as I can tell, but certainly HIV consumed your attention at the beginning of your career. And a decade ago, it was Ebola, and you were right on top of that. And now, of course, the last three years, it's been COVID. So when we think about what you just said, and the pace of being able to know and track and just, just have a handle on the virus, you know, that, there's no question that saved lives, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and um, the, you know, if you, you think about what happened in 1918 and compare it, it's as, as terrible as this outbreak was, 
Um, we were able to respond. We were able to develop diagnostic tests. I know you've you've spoken to two colleagues yeah. here at UMass. We've we've been able to to better understand um, what what the virus is and and what it's doing to people and develop therapies and perhaps most importantly to develop a vaccine. So we're going to talk about vaccines. We're going to talk about the the subvariants um, some more. But in terms of the work going on in your lab, are you now completely focused on COVID, or are you still studying HIV, Ebola, other viruses that might be emerging? Good question. Um, we we are um, we are in fact still studying HIV. The HIV pandemic is unfortunately uh, quite active. And there's still are very important questions about HIV, about how it how it persists in in a person's body, um, despite the therapies we have that will completely suppress the virus. Nonetheless, we can't cure the person, so we can't eliminate the virus. Um, and so uh, many of us are are trying to better understand that interaction between the virus and the host. The, the person who's infected in the hope that, um, well, there, there are two big hopes with HIV. One is that we might figure out a way to eliminate the virus, not just suppress it. I have to point out though, when I started taking care of people who were living with HIV, the virus was a death sentence. So if you were infected, you could predict that that person would be dead, say within 10 years. And there was nothing we could do about it. We we could treat their symptoms, so to speak. And today it's been totally transformed. Like a functional cure for many people. Yeah. It's a chronic disease that requires ongoing therapy. But the, ther the therapies initially were very difficult to take. And now they've become much, much easier. So you, you can take one pill a day instead of 40. And uh, going forward, I'm... I'm very hopeful that there will be longer term therapies where, for example, you could get a shot every six months that would would persist and you you wouldn't have to take pills every day. But going forward, it would be nice if you didn't have to do anything. And so we're trying to eliminate it. And then there's the hope that we can develop a vaccine as well. Do you want to make any prognostications about what could be on the horizon in terms of viruses or pandemics? Is there any way to know, I guess? Well, so there is no way to know. We we do believe that um, pandemics are 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 an ongoing threat. There's there's good reason to believe that there are other viruses out there, some that some that we know about and some that we don't. It's perhaps the ones we know nothing about that are the scariest because we can't predict anything. But you know, I can give you one example. Uh, right now, there there is um, a huge amount of so-called avian flu circulating the globe. So there there are birds all over the planet that are transmitting a virus that is not highly transmittable in people. It's difficult for that virus to infect people, but it is possible. And when it does, it's deadly. So it has a very high uh, probability of killing the person who it infects. What's really concerning is that birds are everywhere 
and they have the ability to infect other animals. And so there was just a report, for example, of mink being infected with one of these avian viruses. And there was, there was evidence, again, from the sequence, so sequence becomes important again, that that virus had adapted to a mammal, a mink. Right. And that is worrisome because that, that means that virus might be better able to transmit person to person. So, so in terms of, of future outbreaks, one of there, there are a number of issues that are of concern. One, one being that people are traveling around the, the planet so much, and that, that allows viruses that infect people to, to travel as well. And the other thing is that there's encroachment on natural habitats where where many of these viruses are are have reservoirs and can then cross over into people or spill over. You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast featuring the people, ideas and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan. We're speaking with Jeremy Lubin, a physician scientist and professor of molecular medicine at UMass Chan. So I want to get back to SARS-CoV-2 and all the various strains. Is it true that most people who are infected will never know what strain they were infected with? And and I guess the subsequent question to that is, you know, does it matter what strain you're infected with? Strictly speaking, um, most people won't know. That being said, in most cases, it's based on when the infection occurred, depending where on the planet they were infected, it may be possible to, to guess what the likely virus was. To really know, you need sequence. And that, that for example, would require taking the nasal swab that was positive and putting it into a special deep sequencing uh, machine and and getting the answer. So there are places that do this in real time. Um, it's not very common. Yeah, for most people, it's probably financially and time restricted. Right, but for example, if you were you were infected in uh, say Massachusetts in um, the the early fall of 2021, you probably had the Delta variant. And if you were infected in January in Worcester, it was probably BA1, the first Omicron variant. Um, so, so we can make guesses about that. The, the identity of the virus, it's not something I think the average person needs to worry about or think about, but it, it has some, um, some implications for going forward for for the design of the vaccines that that we um, we think may be useful in the future, so there's been a lot of discussion this 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 fall about how the boosters should be designed, whether they should accommodate the Omicron variant of of the day, <laughs> and um, this is an ongoing debate. I think I think the important thing that that people uh, need to keep in mind is that the vaccines are extremely effective at doing what matters most, and what matters most is keeping people from dying, keeping people from being hospitalized, and and going to intensive care units, um, and in that 
category um, uh, these vaccines that we have available in Massachusetts um, are extremely effective. So again, January 2023 right now, let's go a little bit deeper into what you were just talking about. Across the United States, 80% of Americans have received the vaccine, at least one shot. 70% are considered to be fully vaccinated. Only a third have received a booster. So, uh, and, and you likely know that the FDA is currently considering recommendations for these vaccines going forward. And I guess the question is whether or not as time goes on, we will be urged to get an annual COVID vaccination the same way we're urged to get an annual flu vaccination. If you were at the FDA, what would you do? I think there, there are different issues. But before I even answer the question, I would say people have to keep in mind that we are learning as we go. And there is nobody who knows the answer. Um, and it's really important to make that clear. This is a new virus. We've never seen it before uh, 2019. We are still baffled by many, many of its features. Um, it's an extraordinary biological entity that is very complex. And our immune system is extremely complex. And how we interact with it is complex. So we're, we've been learning as we go. And a lot of the confusion is because People are trying to simplify things and make make clear decisions about something that we have partial information about. Going forward, we don't know the answer to the to the question. I think the the possibilities are there's a there's a range of possibilities. I think the most likely are um, that there may be an annual booster that is designed to target the current strains that are circulating. It may be that it will end up being the kind of situation we had before with flu, where only those people who are at, at risk for severe disease, that is people over a certain age, maybe over 65, or people with chronic lung disease or, or other chronic illnesses will be recommended to get the vaccine. It's possible, since this is a new virus, it's not influenza, that it'll be important for the general population to get those, those boosters, uh, annual boosters. We don't know. I think it's also conceivable that once the everyone in the population has seen the virus, has been infected and exposed, that it's even possible we won't need boosters. And I, I don't think anyone can say that's not an ultimate outcome. Interesting. You know, if you think about it, there are certain viruses that we've grown up with that we know are worse if we get them as adults than if we get them as kids, like chicken pox famously. Um, and I think the same is clear with SARS-CoV-2. So in general, Certainly, there are children who've died from SARS-CoV-2. I don't want to belittle that, but the the probability is much lower for someone who's young, for someone who's 30, 40, uh, to have severe disease than someone who's 70 or 80. It's possible that if, if we grow up with SARS-CoV-2, if we get it in grade school and we get it multiple times, the way that we get other coronaviruses that are related to it, so all of us have been infected with the four common cold coronaviruses many times. 
Um, and in most cases, we just get the sniffles and our immune system can control it. One of the hopes is that SARS-CoV-2 will go that in that direction. And, and that if we grow up with the virus as children, um, we may, it, it may not, it may no longer be the threat that it's been with us so far. That remains to be seen. It's, it's possible this virus is different and that it will remain a more deadly pathogen than the other coronaviruses and that we will still require, say, an annual vaccine. So that leads me to the last question that I have for you as a virologist who has studied this for decades. How do you think about this long term? Like, do we need to acknowledge that the world may never be free of SARS-CoV-2? Again, this is a opinion and not fact. I, I think it's likely that uh, we will come to an equal equilibrium with SARS-CoV-2. I think we can see that already in Massachusetts because there are many, many people being infected, but our hospitals are just not filling up the way that they did in 2020. I think that's a reflection of the fact that most of us have some level of immunity against the virus. I think more than anything else. Uh, people have have postulated that maybe Omicron is less deadly than the previous forms of the virus. I don't think we have good evidence for that. I think it's us <laughs> that's changed. That is, we have immunity now. Um, so I think it's likely that SARS-CoV-2 will be one of a number of agents like influenza, like RSV, that are still are still a reasonable threat. I mean, remember, tens of thousands of people die every year of influenza in the United States alone. Um, it's not totally benign, and occasionally, you know, young people die from 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 viruses like flu. So. I think it's going to be joining that group. We have we have new ways now of monitoring the viruses and understanding them. We've learned a lot about RSV because we are now sequencing it. We didn't we never did that before. Um, we just had a, an explosion of RSV cases. Hospitals were filling up. Pediatric floors were overwhelmed. We now know what those viruses are, and we we can better design diagnostic assays to 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 pinpoint the virus and maybe therapies to treat it. And and um, as well, there are some very exciting vaccines that are on the way. Thank you so much for helping us to understand this. It's always evolving, and thank you to you and everybody in your lab who continues to focus day in and day out on this. Well, thank you. And thank you for, for having such wonderful, important questions to, uh, to discuss with me today. It's really, really a pleasure. Thank you. We'll have to do it again. So you've been listening to the voices of UMass Chan and Dr. Jeremy Lubin, a physician scientist, professor of molecular medicine at UMass Chan. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.